Welcome back. This is Lost Arts Radio. I'm Richard Sachs, and we have a special honor and pleasure to meet one of the people that I've been following for a while. First met him on uh, the Alex Jones Show, being a guest host there, which he's still doing. I think it's on Fridays. We'll check on that. It's Jay Dyer from Jason Analysis, and he's doing some brilliant work. And I wanted to introduce him to you and uh, on a personal level and make this a unique discussion you know relaxed spontaneous discussion to introduce you to jay more as a person rather than podcast number 8051 or something (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, because we could do a lot of that so welcome jay thanks for being here i know you've had a long day and i appreciate the time very much yeah glad to be here yeah i rested my voice so i'm good to go Um, okay jamie said y'all had a good conversation so i'm glad to be here uh, we did great and she she may come back too um, so here's what I had in mind to do. You know, there's not a scheduled out plan, but, but my thought was you've got a lot of material out there, uh, analyzing all kinds of stuff, including a lot of big books that you read for people. Ones that I think you call tomes, right? Big documentaries and, uh, and amazing an- anal- analysis of all this stuff going on in the world. So I-, I wanted to accomplish two things in the brief time we've got today. One is to introduce people to Jay Dyer as a person that usually gets skipped over on the, you know, Alex interviews and uh, other podcasts that you do. You're usually focused, if I'm not mistaken, on the material on a yeah. book. And we kind of missed, you know, getting to meet you in person. And then, I want to look at a bottom line of from all these different things that you've analyzed from different members of secret societies and what's going on in Hollywood, pre-programming and all kinds of stuff, uh, putting it all together, what you think is going on and what the options are for humanity right now. Okay, sure. Yeah, we can go, go any direction you want to go. Yeah. So let's start with how did you get into this? Where are you coming from? Who are you? And um What's what's your background that led you up to what you're doing now? Um, I was just a eccentric theater kid, I guess. I was into the arts in high school. I, I liked movies a lot. I wanted to be involved in film in some way. And so by the time I was 18, I went to college, studied, uh, ended up studying philosophy mm-hmm. and uh, ended up taking some film, film classes too. studied a bunch of uh, religious studies and really wanted to tie all that in and wanted to be a professor. Uh, I didn't realize that the academic system was really a tiered vetted system for people that go along uh, at that time. But as I got older and went into grad school, I did begin to realize that. So I decided that uh, I probably wouldn't fare well in the world of advanced studies and academia. So I, I left that and thought, well, now what am I going to do? I guess I'll just 
try out, you know, blogging. I'd had a blog that I played with back then. This is the late 2000s, okay. early, early 2010s. And that kind of snowballed into a book. Eventually I got a book offer and then that snowballed into one season of a TV show. And then we did, um, uh, some other projects, a second book and, uh, branched out into doing a lot of public debates. And then that branched out into, Hey, do you want to come on the Alex Jones show? And yeah, and I saw, I started hosting the fourth hour for about two years now, uh, almost every Friday, uh, roughly. Um, yeah. and that opened a lot of doors to other shows and podcasts. And, uh-huh. you know, we just did the Tucker Carlson, uh, special, I was on the last one before he got fired. Um, I've been on, you know, Tim cast, all kinds of, uh, uh, great podcasts in the last, just in the last year, really everything kind of, uh, blew up even bigger. So, so it, uh, like you said, it's a lot of things. We, we cover movies, we cover, uh, geopolitics, debates, religious topics. We cover, um, literature. Now we're starting to do more history and lit. And like you said, I do a whole series where I read through the writings of the elite, Mm-hmm. These really boring, dusty, you know, <laughs> as you said, tomes from um, people like uh, Jacques Attali, Bertrand Russell, Carol Quigley. Uh, the list goes on and on. You know, we've covered, I think, 30, 40, maybe 50 of them by now, wow. if you count the white papers, right? Are you so, still doing that reading or is that from the past mostly? No, I, I, I do it uh, pretty consistently. In fact, I just covered more uh, Huxley text last week. Okay, okay. That's that's a lot of time to go through that stuff. You have to kind of pay attention and not just speed read it to say you did it, right? You got to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a speed reader. I've, I've always been a really slow reader. So, um, so when you problem. look at an example of that stuff, like uh, I don't know, tragedy and hope. That's a big book. I mean, there's a lot of pages there, and it's it's really dense, packed with information. How do you condense that down? What's what's that as an example of how you would get to a bottom line of something like that that you read? So that takes some time. Yeah, it did take a few months to get through that book. Um, I was reading through it and lecturing at the same time. Um, and that was about that was the that's kind of what kicked off reading through these elite texts. That was probably six years ago when I first did that. OK. Um, and I read through a bunch of Plato's stuff at the, around the same time before that. Um, to kick off doing a lot of philosophy talks, but I don't really have any strategy about the way I distill it. I just kind of read it, process it, chew on it, and then kind of vomit it out. <laughs> so um, I guess I have a little bit of a skill to be able to do that. So yeah, it, just sure. kinda, it just kind of flows out sometimes. So with that, that was one of the first ones that you did, right? That's what you're saying. It was. That's what kind of gave the idea. Uh, well, hey, why don't you keep lecturing through these writings from you know these important you know geopolitical players and then we did i think brzezinski we did um right. uh jacques Attali, we did uh david rockefeller you know a lot of books like that mm-hmm. uh rank corporation book by alex abea we did hg uh, wells's books we did bertrand russell's books we did another carol quigley text anglo-american establishment Mm-hmm. Um, we did some CIA, uh, operative biographies like Miles Copeland. So, you know, the list on and on and on, we just, kinda, and, I just kind of kept, kept going all, with it. These all tie together, right? These are oh, not, absolutely. Yeah. there's not unrelated books. So when you read, uh, <clears throat> tragedy and hope, what was the message of, uh, the author on that one? Dr. Carol Quigley was the 
mentor to Bill Clinton. Uh, he was a military historian from Georgetown, and he was really writing a an archivist history of the Western of Western civilization, the 20th century, and really giving a defense for the Anglo-American establishment, as he called it, or the Atlantis' power block. So he's saying that the world wars of the 20th century were a tragedy, but that the hope of the 20th century will be liberal uh, dem- democratic capitalism. And so it's a, it's a, it's a defense for uh, what we think of as the West, um, mm-hmm. even in, in its most degenerate forms today. I would argue that that's where it's led us to, but it's a, it's an establishment apologetic basically. So uh, he covers the French revolution all the way up until the 20th century and the first few hundred pages he talks about the creation of the Federal Reserve and, and how bank note, gold notes and bank notes are a kind of a fiat system to game the system, more or less. I mean, he's not really a critic of it. He's just explaining that this is how it works. Right. And that's eventually the same model that the Bank of England had that the Federal Reserve has. So uh, then he gets into, you know, the place of Russia and the world order, and he writes about the world wars and how the international corporate banking elite uh, had a key role in the world, the two world wars and, and them happening. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're behind the institutions that emerged from those uh, world wars, like the league of nations of world war one and the United nations of world war two uh, and the push for various forms of internationalism or globalism. So um, people say it's kind of a, a CFR council foreign relations version of the 20th century, basically. So, so that's why it's such an important book in what he say about, the financial system and the Federal Reserve uh, match up pretty well with G. Edward Griffin's material. It does. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, G. Edward Griffin is writing from a critical perspective. And again, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Quigley is a defender of the system. So he right. thinks it's all good. But uh, yeah, for the most part, I mean, it, you know, it's it's uh, he's not writing as if this is a conspiracy. He's writing it as if this is the system's approach to how to run things for our good yeah this is evolving because it's getting better and better yeah i mean and again he thinks that you know this is the best hope that this is the hope for mankind as well Uh, but there's a really important chapter in the middle where he outlines the future technocracy uh, that the the power structure wants to eventually have AI, smart cities, basically computers will run everything in your life. I mean, he was saying this in the, mm-hmm. the book, book came out in the 60s. So that um, it's a good thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So actually, he was in his own mind a proponent of the future of humanity. He was trying to do what he considered good. Yeah, he, he thinks that all of these kidding. things are the product of Western civilization's advance, correct? Right. Um, the end of the book, it deals with that hope right the, the the advance uh the positives of western civilization liberty economic freedom laissez-faire all of that will coalesce into um some sort of grand global democratic order if we can maintain elements of the middle ages and you know the pre-enlightenment period he actually does say that there's some elements of the middle ages that were good um some degree of influence from religion and so forth so he's not intentionally in his mind malicious Right. I think he really believed that this was, you know, I mean, I think I think he's wrong, but I'm saying he, you know, he he thought that. But it's really interesting that he wasn't trying to do damage. 
Yeah. No, but there was some, there is controversy over the book. Like it, apparently it did say too much. And I think there was attempts to kind of not have it printed at the time. There was arguments over the, the plates, the original plates that the book came from. Uh, but then I think uh, it was kind of written for the policy elite at that time in the 1960s and 70s. Right. So it wasn't a book they expected would be read by anybody except for people studying international relations, you know, at yeah. a graduate yeah. level. Um, but then there's other texts that I would say are almost as important as that. Brzezinski's Between Two Ages is right. a crucial text that comes out a few years later that really describes the technocracy that they want to implement. So how do the motivations of the two authors compare? What do you think Brzezinski was after? Did he say I think their motivations would be on this. It would be really close. Uh, both okay. of them are part of the uh, so-called liberal Democrat side of um, the global order. Um, you know, Quigley is Clinton's mentor. Uh, Clinton is chosen by uh, Cart uh, Brzezinski, basically, and people like that, like David Rockefeller, right. to be uh, to run for president. So I think they're all running in the same circles, and I don't really think there's a huge difference between the neocons and the Brzezinski's. I think. Right. They, might they want to get as close to utopia as possible, right? Well, yeah. They, they, I mean, they see it as we're going towards a, a global technocratic order, and it's just two different game plans of how we get there. What about when you look at the motivation of somebody like Rockefeller? How does that compare? Does he does he also see it as a good thing? Oh yeah, they're all on the same same page, one hundred percent. All right, because and they're all they're all because, existing in steering committees and entities that David Rockefeller created. So yeah. yeah. Because a lot of these guys are seen as intentionally malicious by the people who know something about what they're doing. Well, I think you can be evil without knowing it. Okay. You, know, you, can, you can participate in evil without being fully self-conscious. Right. Uh, but I think that people at that level probably, probably see it as, well, it's just the way it is, so... Well, with Rockefeller in particular, you know, his involvement with Carnegie in the early 1900s, when they came up with the current version of the medical system, you know, it's pretty clear that, yeah, they were using coal tar and oil products for their early medicines because that's what was available from the oil business. But it looks to me like they put together a system where they would dominate medicine but they would use medicine to create more disease. Yes. And it's hard to, hard to see if that, that, you know, that is felt as benevolent by the people who are doing it. But maybe I would say that that's a great example of malicious. Yeah. Okay. So, so you would agree with that? Yeah. I think that, well, people always ask, would you think David Rockefeller was a Satanist? And I'm always like, I don't know. What is he? I mean, you could be an atheist and and operate with just as much evil. Sure. You know what I mean? So, I mean, he was, you know, uh, eugenicist, all that to the core. So that would go along with what you're saying with medicine, which I am familiar with their role in in the history of medicine. So, yeah, the Flexner report and all that stuff around 1910. Um, So in their mind, even though that's malicious from our point of view, do you think they justified it to feel okay in doing it? Oh, yeah, I'm sure there is some all manner of justification doing it for a greater good in the future probably yeah probably and if you have to get rid of some of the lower class useless eater people it's really for the 
benefit of the ones who are left, right? Yeah, one commonality that I, I, covered, I did a talk a couple of years ago called the Ten Commandments of the Global Elite. And I did that talk because I just noticed, you know, at least 10 commonalities amongst these 20, 30, 40 books that we've covered. And they all have the same push for global government, mm-hmm. uh, global currency, technocracy. And one of those is uh, Malthusianism. So they're all Malthusian. Right. 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 Hmm. So then when you look at some of the people leading the current charge toward globalism, even some of the older ones like George Soros, um, he said, I don't think he'd say he's a Satanist. I think he'd say he's an atheist. Right. right? In fact, he said that on television. You're right, right. Right. But his motivation, too, it seems like it's well justified, just like his involvement with the Third Reich originally in Germany. If he hadn't done it, somebody else would. Right. So it's yeah, I think uh, I'm sure the psyche of people at that level of power have all manner of justification for why they think they're doing it or, or what the good is. Right. Um, and they probably don't care about the philosophical considerations of, well, what is the good? Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, I remember K- Kissinger said something one time like, you know, it's good to be smart and politics and geopolitics but if you're too smart it's actually a disadvantage uh and so maybe that maybe what that, by that too much reflection on you know the ethical concerns of what we're up to if you get into the area of having a conscience it could be really detrimental yeah maybe that's what he might have meant yeah so soros i i think from what i've seen publicly uh takes responsibility and pridefully for causing the ukraine situation or at least having a big hand in it yeah yeah i mean i came out with uh, victoria newland and the things that she had said and he he bragged about it and this goes back as i understand to i think he was working with the cia under reagan to Mm -hmm. uh change the government have a regime change in the 1990s when they started putting money into the orange revolution in the ukraine as Mm -hmm. i understand it even he was involved even back then wow yeah. yeah, I knew about 2014, but not 1990s. Yeah, apparently, he was involved in that stuff even back then. And um, there was some, I don't remember where I read this, it was a long time, but some connection between him back then and, and Reagan's CIA back at the time. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Reagan played a big part in going along with a lot of globalism that I don't think he understood. Right. Yeah. Well, Dave Rockefeller says in his memoirs, I just I'd forgotten this section, but in the really famous chapter on internationalism, after he covers the history of the CFR and Bilderberg group, he gets to the last page of that chapter and he says, one time there was a president, Ronald Reagan, and he decided he would talk about the CFR and Bilderberg and the Trilateral Commission on TV, and it didn't go well for him. <laughs> yeah, so, I was a little bit naive. A lot of the presidents are kind of naive, I guess. Well, I wonder what he means. Like, is he say, is he talking about the, you know, assassination attempt? I mean, what was the exact statement? It's something like it didn't go well for Reagan when he talked about this. Uh, probably the assassination attempt. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, he yeah. probably meant, you know, right. If you want to be a president and you think you're going to talk about this publicly and say you're going to come after, you know, trilateral and all that, then right, might not go be well the best. Yeah, exactly. But they had a probably. A stressful time deciding whether to get rid of him or not because he had been very useful in some ways. You know, the, the medical system, which we alluded to with Rockefeller, 
is really being used now. And that was from Reagan. Yeah, that's right. He privatized intelligence. He did all kinds of things that he were very He took away bad. all the liability. Yeah, of the, of the pharmaceuticals, yeah. Uh, the vaccine companies in particular. Yeah, yeah I, heard, I heard that. And, and he also allowed for a lot of the military-industrial complex corruption through allowing a lot of intelligence to no longer be connected to government. Not that I'm for a big bureaucratic government, but I'm saying his argument of privatization, all that did was make it more of a corporate private thing, which allowed for more corruption. Yeah. I don't think, you know, people think that presidents must be really amazingly intelligent and informed and know what's going on. And I can't think of any that really fit that description at the moment. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're very, yeah, they have a very limited bubble scope of things and, and they fall right into choosing advisors that are there to control them. Absolutely. Right. They're mostly actors. So what about when you get into some well-known global philanthropists like Bill Gates and people like that? I mean, how do you see the motivation coming from that? I mean, again, I think that his background of uh, coming from a family, uh, you know, intimately involved in Planned Parenthood, just right. 100% Malthusianism. So, you know, with a lot of those kinds of people, you know, people have said this about uh, that level of, of megalomania, like you, you think that your task was saving the world. So there's this sort of messianic delusion yeah. that they have yeah. that, that they can save the world through these, you know, which w- most people I think would say is mad science and, you know, insanity, but <laughs> for them, they think they're going to save the world. So in um, his case, by, by killing most of the extra people, mm-hmm. right. And controlling the rest. Exactly. Yeah. I get the feeling that there's, there are levels above those guys that we don't hear the names of and they don't have books in public circulation, but they're telling them what to do. The, a satanic level, several levels above that. Have you, have you gotten that impression also? I think it's very likely. I mean, uh, you know, Quigley talks about, uh, back in the eight, late 1800s and early 1900s that, uh, you know, it's basically 12 people and those really wealthy family and uh, families and elites that were telling the Rhodes Milner society what to do. So yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same impression that I get. So at the moment, there are a lot of uh, these potentially well-meaning threats to humanity intended to cut the population way down and enslave anybody that's left. And what's your general feeling about where things are going right now, considering the consciousness of the population? Uh, where is the where will the population go, or what are the elites going to do? World events and, and outcomes. Uh, well, we're probably going to see more psyops like we saw in the last three years. Uh, we'll probably see. I mean, I don't know, but, you know, they they run a lot of drills for more viruses, so-called more pandemics. They run drills for cyber polygon, cyber pandemic. You know, Klaus has been saying that the next pandemic will be cyber and it'll be way worse than than the the covid. Um, So it could be any of those things. Maybe there's war on the on the horizon. Uh, That's always a fallback when you have 
extremely mm-hmm. unpopular regimes like Biden's to just right. deflect to a, a war. So, you know, it could go in that direction. Um, but I don't think the system seems to be pretty uh, desperate to do anything they can to prop up what they're, what they, they have. They, they can never not push it. You know what I mean? It's all every, right. It, it never, the technocratic agenda, for example, never stops. It just always gets pushed. doesn't matter what presidents are there or who's elected like that never stops. And, and to me, that tells me that that says that, you know, there's a bigger thing afoot than, you know, this or that political nonsense. It's That's a major, all. major focus of the World Economic Forum at the moment, right? Yeah. So I think whatever psyops and um, <clears throat> stage strategy of tension uh, nonsense is necessary to further that, that's always the number one agenda, the, the tech stuff. You think there's any way of um, salvaging? Although I forgot to say economic collapse for the CBD, oh, yeah. CBDC, I, maybe that's the next another, stage. Another little detail there. They've got a lot of things to balance. And they want the collapse, right? But in a certain way. It's eventually, it's. I don't, but I mean, I'm, at, I, I'm sure they want to manage it. Yes. But they may, the infrastructure might not be there yet to... I mean, if you think about the CBDC, uh, that's... I don't know how they're going to bring that in. Like, they, I don't think they could bring that in right now because there's so many people who... Like, if you look at the world of crypto, I mean, not many people, comparatively speaking, are into cryptocurrencies yet. Right. To get everybody on a CBDC, it seems like the majority of the world is going to have to be at least amenable to or open to crypto. And we're not there yet. So I don't know how they're going to get everybody on a CBDC anytime soon. But I think they definitely want to do that. The The guy from the BIS said that. <laughs> he said, we're going to have a central bank digital currency wallet and we'll shut it off when you say something we don't like. Right. Yeah. You're saying that it would be as inconvenient and difficult to understand as crypto is for most people. I'm just saying that those two worlds are similar. Um, You know, central bank digital currency is a form of crypto. So, uh, you know, a lot of people still have a hard time with cryptocurrencies. They don't understand it. They're not interested in it. It's It's a niche market smaller than a tenth, you know, smaller than gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and gold is still a small market, I guess, compared to the rest of the global economy. Right. So I just don't know how they think it will get everybody on to, you know, a, a CBDC anytime soon. I know they want to do it, but I just don't, yeah. I don't understand the logistics of how, how know, even within that. five years, how would you get people doing How to that? make it convenient and understandable enough, basically. So that you've got, you know, a giant portion doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would think what they're probably trying to do is have the crypto backbone to it, but have it built out with the conveniences so that the average person just has to hand you a card or some, you know, code number or something like that. Because the regular crypto like Bitcoin at this point, you have to take a lot of responsibility. And if you make a mistake, you lose all your money. And I would think they'd probably have that covered so that's not as much of a danger. It's, yeah, but it's still like the on-ramp is just difficult for most people, especially right. uh, you know, the older uh, the generation we're talking about, the more difficult it is to get them to um, to engage in that kind of exchange. Yeah, they've got to find a way to make it really easy and user-friendly. Right. Uh, or, you know, the only other way, like some kind of, crazy scenario where everybody's forced to use it i don't know how that would work but 
I just don't see how in the you know maybe but maybe they're planning in in ten years you know twenty years yeah to have the CBDC. Do you think elections are pretty much gone in the U.S. as far as actual elections go that are not rigged? Uh, presidential or all of them? Well, I, mean, I imagine the local both. elections are. I mean, I'm sure some of those are rigged, but there's some local elections that I know of that are still going pretty much honestly. I think depending uh-huh. on where we're talking about, but on a large scale, the states are in seriously corrupted and mm-hmm. federal. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw corrupted. that in the last uh, last one, but right. Uh, if you look at the history of the mafia, you know, I mean, they were rigging elections a long time ago, so that it's not a new thing. No. CIA has people that go and do that in other countries that are specialists in it. So that, you know, it's not surprising, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I imagine somebody like a Trump or somebody would be, I think they would be forced to cheat again is what I'm trying to say. If, you know, there's no other way that they, that they right. pull this off. Yeah. Cause it sounds like Trump may be the uh, Republican party nominee. And, it, and I mean, Biden is just such a disaster. I can't even imagine that. Right. Well, I think Trump won massively in 2020. Yeah. You know, and they managed to have. And they tried to say that, you know, Biden had the most votes of any president ever. <laughs> or yeah. of any candidate ever. It's just come on. It's so would they not just do that again in 2024? Do you think? Oh, I think they will. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, what's. Weird, but I think it'll be. it'll. I mean, it'd be harder to pull it off is what I'm trying to say. Not maybe even. But the perception, because it's like. If yeah, Biden I mean, has extremely low popularity and then he comes out with, you know, more votes than Trump. I mean, that just seems crazy to me. Yeah. More votes than the whole population, probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think in 2020, it was really obvious. I mean, maybe not everybody saw it, but they had vote counting going on in the middle of the night and putting up uh, blocks so that you couldn't watch it, pulling out suitcases from under desks of extra ballots when they needed them. I mean... I think the attitude is, yeah, we're doing this. What are you going to do about it? It was. And, you know, I remember the Bush-Gore election when the Democrats were questioning the election nonstop. So well, why is it okay to question the election? And it, But now if you question it, you're some sort of terrorist. Or A domestic terrorist, for sure. Yeah. There was, And it's not coming just from the machines, although that's probably an, a component. Because there was a book that you may know about written in... Uh, what, maybe 1980s? I'm not sure. Maybe before that called Vote Scam USA by the Collier Brothers. And mm-hmm. it was about how elections like presidential elections were uh, corrupted when they had paper ballots and they had all the uh, ballots gathered under guard and taken into uh, secure locations where they would all be changed by workers there and then brought out with whatever result they wanted. Mm-hmm. And documented that it was really interesting uh yeah i'm not surprised because if you read these i'm not aware of that book but you know in these cia biographies of the operatives and people that did this i mean they would talk about how they rigged the elections in other countries so you know it's like confessions what do you you mean nobody rigs the elections the way they brag about it exactly they'd be willing to give up the machines if they have to um, I, I remember getting into that. It was the early 2000s um, when they made that documentary. And I think the documentary came about as a result of the people questioning the Bush Gore election. Uh, but I can't mm-hmm. remember the name. Alex mm-hmm. used to have that 
person on all the time, but it was a, it was a famous documentary in the mid two thousands. You probably know what I'm talking about. I think so. I don't remember the name. I don't remember the name of it, but that's my first, the first time I heard of all that with uh, the machines and the the rigging, but right. The logistics of rigging the paper ballots too, I'm sure has a long history behind it. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you're aware of the book confessions of the economic hitman, right? Yeah. John Perkins. Yeah. John Perkins. Right. And he, how he did that in other countries. Where do you think somebody like you mentioned Trump? Where do you think he's actually coming from? It seems like he's really still naive to a lot of these things. And has, I don't know. I mean, I get asked that all the time and I'm not honestly, I'm not, I don't follow a lot of day to day politics. I'm not knocking anybody that does. Um, I just spend most of my time in those big books. I find that a lot more interesting than, you know, the political WWF football stuff. Right. I think, you know, when Trump says things that are good, I appreciate it. Uh, when he does makes mistakes, I have no problem saying that that's yeah. ridiculous. Seems so. like there's a mentality that somebody has to be either all good and yeah. know everything or are completely evil and trying to destroy the world. And the yeah, human beings are not uh, radical, you know, either ors. You know, right, we're, exactly. we're on a spectrum, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So no matter what president comes out, it's mostly going to depend on the whole consciousness of the population, what happens, right? One person's not going to save it. Yeah, and, and you know, Alex had a lot of talks and interactions with Trump, and, you know, he he always characterized it as, you know, he's uh, overall pretty good, but like you said, also in a lot of ways really naive, a lot of uh, not understanding how this, this kind of stuff works. He hires his own enemies as advisors for one thing, yeah, which is I can't I can't really fathom that. But I heard some story about that that had to do with I don't know if this is true, but it makes sense. It's something like um, he at first he was not going to accept uh, Republican money, and then right then he they were going to give him. Then they said, okay, you can have the money, but you have to let us choose who is going to be in your cabinet. That could, that could that's be. that's I've t- I've heard that's what was the source of that, but I don't know. I think that's pretty serious, and the the more serious thing is the character flaw, because he must know, unless he's one of the only people that doesn't, that the shots have killed, I don't know, twenty million people worldwide so far, and he's one of the biggest promoters in the world, and he's still saying that they're good and you should take them, and how he he either is so ignorant of that kind of stuff that it's less than almost anybody else is aware of. Yeah, I think it's, that's a huge mistake. Huge error, huge mistake, totally. Yeah, yeah. Or, or he's willing to lie at, at the cost of millions of deaths, which is pretty serious. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, character issues, exactly. Yeah. So, how much power do you think the WEF has in directing events at this point? From your impression i don't know that they direct events but they seem to definitely be a uh a public sort of mouthpiece of the global establishment it's sort okay, of a more, yeah. more, a more public bilderberg uh, bilderberg has a right. lot of power because it's a lot of fortune 100 you know people like that so yeah um in terms of public voice and propaganda i think they have power 
Um, I don't know if I'd say they were directing things because I think that there's there's a managerial class of people, you know, that do direct things. You know, that right. would be Bill Gates, Soros, Brzezinski, those kinds of characters. Yeah. They, they direct things. It's, it's a similar situation in governments like in the U.S. Congress. When most of what the people in it vote on, they never read. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's being, exactly. being created by people for them. So there's kind of this invisible class, yes. whether you're talking about the U.S. government, other governments, or the WEF or groups like that, that you don't hear about, that writes the laws, you know, and tells them what positions to take and rewards them handsomely for doing it. Yeah, the, the policy makers and the steering committee people, you know, they give to the politicians, what the politicians are supposed to do, right? That's right. what the CFR hands down what the politicians are supposed to do. And, you know, if you don't go along with it, then you're ousted. You know, you're not an inner, you're not, you don't get the perks. Uh, the media destroys you, this kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's how it works. How do you see climate change fitting into this whole situation? Uh, total scam. I just last, uh, last Friday on Alex I covered the, uh, one of the key texts for that, which is Friedhoff Copper, he's one of the big brains behind climate stuff. And uh, yes. I was living. that was um, a great and, show, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, his 1982 mm-hmm. book, uh, Turning Point, was a big, uh, a big piece of of information. And, and he also talks about medicine in that, by the way, about using medicine as a way to bring about this new society, this new era. You know, first the Club of Rome, first global revolution, all that stuff. I mean, that that's a huge linchpin of this because that ties into the technocratic stuff because they always right they always say oh well you know we have these lockdowns and this uh, allowed mother earth to breathe and yeah. now we need climate lockdowns because you know uh, and then th- this is tied exactly. into the tech stuff by the techs going to regulate your carbon and your you know how much yeah. you eat and all that so th- exactly it's a, it's a key you know foundation of this building that they're building climate change is 100 percent key Right. And you, you're probably aware of the connection between that and creating weather disruption by geoengineering, right? Yeah. Yeah. I put, uh, I think I have a chapter on geoengineering in the second book, I think, that I did. Yeah. When I was working with uh, Dane Wigington as a co host on that show, we watched them creating the California drought and the clouds would come in over the ocean, you know, most of their weather comes from the North or South Pacific onto the West Coast and then across the Sierras and across the country from West to East. And the storms would approach as normal during the drought years, and there was not a problem until they got near the coast, and then swarms of planes would come in, Mm. and you'd see them spraying, and the clouds would disappear and rain 2,000 miles to the east instead. It was really interesting. Yeah, I didn't uh, first heard about this in 2000, maybe seven or eight from a waiter. Uh, now I, I'd heard a little bit about cloud seeding because Alex used to have uh, Ben Livingston on, who was a father of weather weapons. But one day right. I was in the, uh, that was in the mid two thousands, but then one day I was eating dinner and some guy was going on and on about uh, geoengineering. And uh, so I went and looked it up. It was about 2006 or seven. And at that time it was still, pretty easy to find uh journals and and scientific literature on it so Mm -hmm. i had actually downloaded and stored a lot of those that you can't find anymore stanford they may they may still be up but stanford research used to have a a elf vlf page where they had all these 
documents and, and a whole list of the research. Um, they had a harp page, not harps page, but Stanford had a page about harp and what it could do. And, and that's old technology, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I read, you know, pretty deep into that from 2007 up till maybe 2014 or 15 when I wrote the second book. Um, you know, that some really good documentaries started coming out around 2012, 13 too about that. Um, so yeah, I, I do know I'm not an expert on geoengineering, but I've, I've read enough about it to know it's real. So yeah, yeah, it seems most. By the way, it's also talked about in a lot of these global uh, texts too. So Klaus has a chapter on it. Oh. Um, you know, you can go back to Annie Jacobson's History of DARPA book. That's not technically a global elite text, but it's a, a mainline history of of DARPA. She talks about uh, Agent Orange and cloud seeding and weather weapons in Vietnam. Um, let's see i think bertrand russell and h wells even talked about uh controlling the weather back when they were writing in the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. um so in other words a, a lot of these globally i remember reading about uh, edward teller uh, he's the father of uh, atmospheric spring right the this the atomic bomb father dr mm-hmm. edward teller he's also the father of geoengineering i didn't know that yeah um i think that's in uh, I think it's a name Jacobson's book and maybe in the uh, Alex Abea Rand Corporation book too, but okay. it's in, it comes up in the mainline text. On and they're presenting it now as a good thing to mitigate global warming, which is something that we should all be terrified of. Yeah, it was what uh, John Brennan, right? Former CIA director. Yes, he did right. that, that talk, uh, CFR talk where he said, yeah, it's great because we can spray the skies and control the climate. Yeah, exactly. So it makes sense that the geoengineering program is fulfilling multiple purposes. You know, one would be to make climate change seem real so that you should be scared and make believe that it's uh, helping to stop this terrifying global warming. While in reality, it's creating weather destabilization. Exactly. Which yeah. is perfect. Yeah, and they, they said they could even do that at the, in Vietnam. They said they could, you know, either send rainstorms that would flood the Viet Cong or try to, you know, cause yeah. a drought. Exactly. So, you know, that's that document, at, Owning the Weather by 2020. There's Owning the Weather by 20, yeah. And then there's um, there's also that UN treaty uh, on not using weather weapons. So, like, why is there a treaty on something that doesn't exist, right? <laughs> yeah, just in case it ever does, right? Mm-hmm. So how does the UN fit into all this stuff? A lot uh, of people still believe that that's for global peace and cooperation. It's not. It was a, <clears throat> an, ent- an entity created uh, by the same power structure that originally created the League of Nations as a result of World War One. The idea was, well, we can't have another world war, so we've got to have this international institution um, there was still enough American sovereignty and independence at that time that it ended up uh, not being successful. That was the League, League of Nations. Right? right. A lot of the U.S. Uh, congressmen and senator uh, discussion at that time saw it as a compromise of American sovereignty, and so it failed. Yeah. Then we got the Second World War, which have been planned and written about by the same Royal Society elite. By the way, H.C. Wells talk about, talks about World War II like seven or eight years before it happens. Right. Um, and they funded what, both, both sides of it were yeah. funded in the same entities. And, I mean, he writes about, you know, 
even the technology that would be used in World War II in his in his uh, shape of things to come. Huh. And so, if you watch that movie, you know, I think it comes out in the late 30s. I mean, this is you know prior to, to World War II. I forget the exact date. Maybe it's late 20s even. But science it's, fiction. Yeah, it's several years before, but it's he's basically writing about what would happen in World War II in the shape of things to come. So. Uh, this shows, I'm just saying that the world, the, the war was planned years ahead of time, but the, the UN is the creation of the Fabian socialists who saw this as the next, uh, justification for problem, reaction, solution, right? right. Uh, problem, World War II, reaction, people are scared, afraid of, of the war, uh, solution, another global entity with more power than League right. of Nations. Now, the UN hasn't been, I don't think it's been as successful as they hoped it would be. It doesn't really have a whole lot of power, but, it does have a lot of propaganda power and it's had a lot of, um, it had a lot of say so in the last three years, for example, uh, you know, with COVID. So what, where it will go, I don't know whether they need another body as a result of right. World War three, you know, well, the knows? UN has all kinds of agencies that work for it, yeah. like extensions of it. Yeah. And it seems like, for example, they're orchestrating and carrying out and funding the mass so-called migration that's happening right now. Yeah, they had those uh, two dot one or what that document about replacement from several years ago. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, right, right. And uh, one of the people that was a key promoter of that was that European banking guy. Um, he worked for the UN. <sighs> what was his name? Anyway, I, I remember reading about the guy behind the program before he died, but he was a big uh, European. I mean, he was a banker for the EU. The mass migration program? Yes. Oh. It was run by an EU uh, banker. Wow. So, I mean, I, I haven't done a very good job of this during our discussion, but I like to bring in people that are just new and don't understand a lot of the basics of this why is mass migration something bad? And I know there's many aspects to it, one of which is that these people are all fleeing climate change, right? And it's going to get much worse because the climate is just falling apart daily. So why is well, what's the, the purpose of the mass migration program? Uh, to completely change demographics. That's it. So simple. Yeah. So it's uh, weaponizing people groups to disrupt existing people groups, to, to destabilize. It's a strategy of tension. I mean, it's actually written about uh, at the military level, right? Kelly Greenhill, who I think yeah. for, has a book called Weapons of Mass Migration. That's a book published for Stanford for either the Navy or Army or something. I don't remember, but it's it's a military publication. So it's a, it's, it's a well-known strategy. It's odd that, you know, people are like, think you can't talk about that it's like there's military publications it's on like it. how to have about? a war without seeming to have a war yeah right what document was it that said i think uh the u.s is supposed to get 680 million new people coming in it's that u.n document that has various scenarios i forget the name of it but it's the one you're talking about okay yeah so at this point I mean, people are talking about things getting better at the 2024 election, but there's so much damage that's happening daily now at the border. Um, it's like this invasion is going really well. And some of the people I know uh, that Mike Adams is talking to are talking about some kind of tie-in to a military invasion. Do you think there's any 
Anything to that that you know of? Don't know. I mean, it could be. Um, I don't know. Hopefully he's wrong, but I don't know. It's certainly an opportunity for it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Alex's reports on uh, the border, and you know, I'm sure it's it's bad. Um, I don't. I just don't know about exactly the age and the you know the people that are coming over. Whether they're just just a flood of people or whether it's actually an intentional, like, you know, move people who have military uh, training. I I don't know. I I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, this is nothing would surprise me at this stage of anything. Exactly. I I think the vast majority from what we can tell are just uh, really innocent victims of the shutdowns in their own countries that were caused by the reaction to the fake pandemic. Yeah. COVID. Yeah. Right. And they were, then they were advertised to come to the U S yeah. But Biden said that. Yeah. Biden said it publicly. And then they were given money to come. Right. Debit cards and free cell phones and transportation. I mean, they didn't walk the whole way. They were put on that. That was actually uh, a good, there was a good report that came out a few years ago. It might've been gateway pundit. I can't remember who, who broke it, but they were, they had, Noted, they found the connection between like the Soros entities and the and the Roman Catholic bishops, oh. Roman Catholic Church that was work. They were working together to get these people over here. Yeah, because it's the Catholic charities that yes. end up taking them at the border, right? And give and and it, but it's a it's a higher level scam because they're they're just taking the money. Which like money? The, the diocese is just taking the money to do that. Well, it's like. Money is given for these people. It's not going to the people is what I'm trying to say. Okay, okay. And the money is coming from what, UN agencies? All these different kinds of aid, like, yeah, aid aid things, yeah. Right. It's some kind of scam. It was, I can't remember if it was a, a gateway pundit or, or one of those kinds of sites had discussed. If you type in, like, Catholic Charities, comma, uh, immigrants, comma, it'll come up. You know, it seems like one of the main themes in all these issues is that people don't see anything obvious they can do about it. You know, you're watching the destruction of sovereign countries and cultures and societies, and in particular the U.S., which seems important as a symbol to the rest of the world just because it was the only place I know of that codified the priority of individual freedom. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't think of any other country whose founding documents say that, mm-hmm. that government is only to protect the individual freedom, not the collective. And so it's important, I think, for the symbolic reason that the U.S. is not allowed to continue. But shows like people on Alex's show and others, you know, often tell the audience, how much are you going to put up with? But they don't tell them how to not, not put up with it. I think that's an important detail, right? Do you notice what I'm Well, one thing that people, you know, like you're saying, when they hear this kind of stuff and they think, well, what am I supposed to do? I I can't fix all this. Well, nobody was, the expectation was not that you or any single person could fix it all, right? So that, but it's rather what's the rational choice for you to do in your situation. And you can do all kinds of things. You don't have to have a podcast or whatever. Like you can do things in your own life. Absolutely. Right. Like you can promote the stuff to your friends. You can get off grid. You can have a garden. You can live organic, eat, eat organic food. You can, right. you know, you can do those kinds of things or move towards doing those kinds of things, not putting your money in the fortune 100, fortune 500. I mean, those are like the, 
the ways that if everybody did that, it would right. all this would go away. But people think that when they hear, uh, well, what can I do? I can't fix all. Yeah, it's like that's not the expect. Think about what you can do in your sphere. Well, when you look at an example like the border situation with the border ranches being overrun on the you know southern U.S. and coming into the cities all over the place, not Martha's Vineyard, I guess, but most of the regular cities, right? And um, and people are saying, you know, this is a danger to everybody, including the people who are being brought in as trafficked. What is there anything that can be done to fix that situation? I don't know. Uh, yeah, this this those are things beyond me. I think the people pushing this at the top, you know, point oh one percent, they're they can right. fly to their private island, so they don't care. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. That's that's a tough one. I don't either. I don't have a great answer for that. What what do you want to come out of? You know, what what's your current focus with with your work? What you're wanting to do? And let's talk about the what's going to happen at the Franklin event too. That's coming up. Uh, you know, I just want to keep putting out unique analyses. Uh, keep working through these global texts. I want to write a book on. Uh, um, geopolitics from these texts. That's one thing I want to do in the next year or two. Okay. Um, working on the next uh, Esther Hollywood book, part three. Um, uh, we've been doing more live events. That's been a lot of fun going out and meeting people in the flesh and not relying on so much uh, internet content, but, you know, getting back to real world connections. Uh, yeah. That's a big, a big part of what we've enjoyed the last year, because I think that, you know, the, the COVID period was, I mean, it sucked for everybody because even if you weren't going along with any of it, a lot of people were. So you couldn't have a live event, <laughs> you know, no. even if your city wasn't like you, you wouldn't, people wouldn't come because everybody was just terrified over nonsense. Exactly. Even now so, people are wearing masks. That's amazing. Even still. Yeah, exactly. I, I still see people that wear masks, but so, I, you know, getting back to doing these live events, which that, that will be the June 3rd and 4th uh, events in Nashville. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of, you know, Alex adjacent people will be there. I don't know if you guys can see that, but uh, hold it still for a minute. That's uh, Courtney's poster there. So okay. Owen will be there. I'll be there. Great. A lot of uh, Mel Kay, uh, Ryan Christine, Last American Vagabond. A lot of a lot of people in our circles. You know, will be there. So June third or fourth this weekend. I didn't, that's this weekend outside Nashville. So right, right. Yeah. And is that something you need tickets for? It is a ticketed event. Yeah, you can get those tickets uh, at Rebels for Cause is the website. Um, dot com. I think that I think it is dot com. Let me see. I think she's got it right here. But you can, you know, if you go to my website, you'll see the links for that as well. On every every post has the link to this. Okay. It is rebelsforcause.com. And four is spelled out. It's not the number four. F O R correct. Okay. So your vision is more educational work, basically. Oh, yeah. Great. Hold it still for a sec. Nashville. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I really enjoy what we, what we do. I enjoy, we do a lot of podcasts on movies. We do a lot of comedy. We do, we do all kinds of stuff. So I just intend on, you know, continuing to do that kind of stuff. What's the importance of Hollywood and everything that we've been talking about? Well, the good news is that it's not as important as it used to be. Um, 
but I mean, you know, media uh, still exists as a control system, as a, a way to socially engineer. Uh, now it's, you know, streaming platforms, it's Netflix and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> right. um, so that still exists in, form. yeah, it still exists in that form, but the old Hollywood studio system isn't really that relevant anymore. But, um, you know, for many years, I guess in the 20th century, it was to, to cite Edward Bernays, you know, the most powerful tool of propaganda the world's ever seen. Yeah. So yeah. that's what it was, you know, for much of the 20th century. And uh, a lot of that has died away. And I think now we're shifting to things like video games for the younger generation. It's a lot more powerful uh, of a tool to suck all their time away and brainwash them than than movies are. But it uh, normalizes all kinds of killing, too. I think it's really interesting. It does. Yeah, that's a good. Video games emerged even in the beginning, mainly shooting. Yeah, from the Pentagon. It was a video games were a Pentagon uh, uh, soldier training thing. So why does it want everybody to be focused on normalizing killing? Uh, to give everybody a uh, devalued view of human life. Yeah, that's right. And to accept all the constant war and things like that. Yeah, there's a term, uh, some, I can't remember if it's a philosopher, somebody used uh, the brutalization of the masses is what, right. what that is, I think. Right, right. So if you had a message from everything that you've gone through and all the big books that you've analyzed and your Hollywood experience and everything, what, what would you like people to know, you know, that would change their perspective on all this stuff rather than just the details? What's what's the, is there a bottom line? I think the bottom line is that the arts are a great thing that could be used for the uplifting of humanity. They could be things that point. I think they're supposed to be things that point us to the transcendent. But unfortunately, not everything, not all the arts, not all music and movies, but a lot of the arts um, have been retooled. Uh, in an anti-human destructive way. And so that's yeah, yeah. the essence of what I wanted to convey probably in the last, in those two books and uh, uh, overall. The arts have been used for corrupt purposes. Yes. So what response are you suggesting? Well, like this event, you know, we wanted to get positive freedom oriented, you know, virtue oriented artists together uh, well, it's not my event. It's, I mean, that's the idea behind the event. It's Courtney's event. But, yeah. um, you know, to, to retool, repurpose the arts for what they're made for, for oh, virtue good. and for, for good things. What are you going to be doing at the event? Uh, probably a lot of impressions. So when I do comedy, the easiest thing for me to do is kind of rely on, uh, I do a lot of impressions. So I'll, I'll probably be doing that. That should be great. If If people want to look at, your comedy is, is, are there archives or videos that they can find? Or Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we do when we do podcasts on YouTube, a lot of that material is, uh, it's sort of infotainment. So there's, you know, yeah. when we do, when, when we do movie analyses, we're joking around a lot. Um, but there is a, a playlist too on the YouTube channel. That's all just sort of, you know, comedy clips and sketches. And the, uh, when we did the Tucker, uh, documentary, most of that was, was comedic stuff. So, okay. And what's the YouTube channel called? It's just my name, Jay Dyer. Okay. And what about the uh, the website is uh, jasonalysis.com, right? Mm-hmm. 
And, and a big part of that is paid content. So what's that about? What do you get for the paid content? Uh, access to the archives, the last six or seven years of all of the talks and interviews, a lot of the content on, on pretty much a weekly basis, maybe even biweekly, mm-hmm. is uh, half free, half paid. Um, we do a lot of free content, but a lot of it is also half and half. So you get access to the full uh, talks and lectures. So that's what's behind the paywall. Okay. So that's membership stuff. Correct. Okay. All right. I think you've had a long day. You're probably ready to relax <laughs> for a while. Hey, it was a great chat though. Really enjoyed uh, the conversation. It was, it was definitely a laid back, you know, easy, easy chat. So yeah, exactly. It. Well, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody will come to the event. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking that we're recording this um, on a, what is the day today? Monday, I think it's Memorial Day, right? It is. Yeah. And, uh, and we're talking about this coming Sunday or Saturday and Sunday. Yes. So we're going to have to do something to get it out early and give people a chance to know about it in time to go. Okay, you guys, there goes Jay Dyer of jaysanalysis.com. And that event that he's speaking of in the interview uh, is actually happening now. Well, that was happening today and yesterday when you're going to see this, because you're going to be watching this on a Sunday or after. And as Doug reminded me, you can get, we, we think that you can get online tickets after the fact to uh, watch the virtual event if you want to. And that's at rebelsforcause.com, rebelsforcause.com. And they should still be selling tickets if you'd like to see what happened there. Jay's Comedy and all the other people that are contributing. And Owen Troyer was going to be there. Um, Matt Baker, people from the Alex Jones Show and a lot of others that you recognize, I think. So should be a good event and hopefully the precursor of a lot of other ones like it to happen. As Jay was saying, that human interaction, which really got... A huge setback during the fake pandemic needs to come back and people need to be doing things that are positive and constructive in their own circles, in their own communities. And uh, I thought it was a good, honest answer he had that he didn't know how people solve big issues, you know, like the border crisis and technocracy coming and uh, the climate scam and all that stuff. But as many of the speakers have said lately, the answer may be at the local level, you know, and try to get things happening in your own community where you interact with the people that are in charge. And sometimes it's even worth going to the uh, school boards and city councils and county commissioners and people like that, utility commissions, and getting things locally changed. Because if that happens all over the country or wherever it does happen, things change to the point where it may get to uh, nullify ridiculous things that happen at the federal level. Um, and that's been talked about a lot. And even at the state level, sometimes that's possible. So um, I appreciate Jay coming on very much. He's got the opportunity almost every Friday to talk to millions of people on Alex Jones's show. And I wanted to make it something different, you know, so it's not just taking another uh, elite group or another particular hidden conspiracy or belief system or, you know, scam of some kind, but see, you know, who's this Jay Dyer guy? And, and the effort was to try to 
expose that to you a little bit so that you could get to meet him. He's a really neat person. And uh, not only can you see him at this event, you know, that's happening now that's just ending and virtual tickets are available still, but uh, every week on Alex's show. And Alex was one of the first ones that was universally banned on um, all the major social media channels, Facebook and YouTube and other ones almost all at once. Uh, but you can see the Alex Jones show uh, six days a week now, and it's still, in my opinion, an incredibly valuable source of news, and I hope it stays available for quite a while. And one of the best places to watch it is Ron Gibson's channel, Ron, G-I-B-S-O-N, on BitChute, for example, and on Brighteon, too. And he's got all the shows there with about uh, most of the commercials wiped out, so an hour show can be watched in something like 42 minutes, typically. And it's an incredible source of information, as well as Infowars.com. Um, I didn't plan on doing a commercial for Infowars, but it ties right into what Jay's saying, and that's a major place to see him in addition to jaysanalysis.com. Um, our work is all coalesced at uh, lostartsradio.com. And some of the stuff from our nonprofit is at lostartsresearchinstitute.org, which I'm in the slow process of renewing right now and updating. But lostartsradio.com has most of everything. And planetaryhealingclub.com is an access point to work with us on individual self-transformation issues like in real life that you want to get your physical health in the best condition that you can. Get yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually in good shape for whatever is coming up, you know, and there's, it's really hard to predict exactly, in my opinion. But whatever it is, you can be of the most use to the future by taking care of yourself. And that's what Planetary Healing Club is focused on being that delicate balance of being aware of the horrible stuff that's going on, which it is. Most of it's indescribably bad, but being aware of that without being sucked into the emotional environment of it and carrying your own um, emotional reality with you so that you can be like a bridge with the idea that you can be the connection between spirit and that energy flowing into the so-called real 3D world. That's what we deal with in Planetary Healing Club. So if you're interested in that and up to it, you're invited, planetaryhealingclub.com, and I'm looking for people from all over the world to join us. And it, it kind of goes together with what Dr. Gabriel Cousins is doing on uh, World Peace Meditation, for which Doug put the site together. That's worldpeacemeditation.net, and it happens once a week on Sundays, Sunday morning U.S. time, all over the world. And that's to focus the energy of what he, Dr. Cousins hopes will be many thousands of people on the reality of what world peace would really mean, which is a radical change from the situation we have now. And what I'm saying in addition and support to that is that where you're focused, where your attention is, which is where basically your prayers and Meditation and manifestation are, are where your attention goes. And the rest of the six and a half to six, 
six days and 23 and a half hours a week outside of the world peace meditation has a huge effect. And we've, we've shown that where your intent is, even if you say nothing, really affects everybody else. This has been demonstrated on a small scale in many interesting ways. And if you get more people doing that with a lot of focus, even people within the power structure can be affected. That's been shown as well. And as David Icke and Chris Guy and others talk about mass peaceful noncompliance being the essential tool for turning this around before it gets a whole lot worse, this is a real potential situation that could change things for the better because if the rulers give the orders for us to all follow suicidal trajectories and kill society and kill the world and people don't do it, it's like the old bumper sticker in the Vietnam era that said, what if they gave a war and nobody came? So if you're in one of those key positions and you're working for the power structure, you becoming self-aware will change what you're willing and able to put up with. And if you don't carry out immoral and illegal orders, then they don't get carried out. And that can happen on a large scale. So I'm encouraging people to, to think about that, especially if you're in a position of power. But even if you're not, the rest of us regular people, what we do has a mass effect. And consciousness is going to be I, you know, the defining issue, I, I think it was recently on Rima Lebo's show and, and she brought up the fact that General Bird, her late husband, had said that informed consent is a defining issue of the 21st century. And I think he's right, but consciousness is the underlying foundation of which way things are going to go. If we keep walking around as brainwashed zombies, just playing the patterns and the mind programs in our head, and not waking up and thinking and perceiving for ourselves, then it goes one way. We become self-aware and wake up to who we are, who we really are, not the fake character we've been playing and where we came from. This place can change completely. And what looks like hell on earth to a lot of people right now could reverse. And I'm in favor of that, so I hope you are too. Do what you can and take care of yourself. Value your time and who you are and your contribution that you're making every minute. And uh, we appreciate you very much, and we'll look forward to seeing you again here very shortly. Take care. Take a deep breath right now The water's rising No place to stand up Can move us now The storm has gone
Feel the sunlight 